Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Matt Siegel. Uh, Matt is an assistant professor in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Uh, he's also behind the YouTube channel and blog Footnotes to Plato, which has got some really rich stuff there, uh, focusing on issues related to process, philosophy, and the study of consciousness. Um, you do courses, you, you, you're, you're, I, I've watched you in conversation with John Ravakey and a bunch of other folks, um, just really, um, you have a, a, a deep knowledge of Whiteheadian philosophy, um, and process philosophy and, uh, the whole study of consciousness is a sort of a specialty. So I'd love to dig into some of that with you today, but um, yeah, well, in a minute, we'll just dive right in, but thank you so much for, for being here. Yeah, my pleasure, Brendan. It's always fun to be uh, in dialogue with other folks who are surfing this, this terrain. Um, yeah, consciousness is definitely at the center of my own interests, but um, kind of touches on everything else, you know? So philosophy of nature, mm. religious studies, all that stuff is, um, of interest, deep and abiding interest for me. So, well, one of the the kind of the, the schema I was thinking we could we could kind of do for this conversation, which I think would be really fun, would be to go all the way back to the beginning. I want to get your your thoughts about trying to paint this picture. All right, um, I'm really interested in in meta narrative tellings of big history and. Uh, particularly within this sort of metamodern context of a return to big storytelling and metanarratological thinking. Um, I've seen so much really fascinating consilience and confluence synergies of, 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 of different thinkers and different paradigms sort of converging on something that seems to me very uh, uh, intelligible, very, very, uh, there's a lot of similarity in sort of the, the tale that's emerged, I would say, in the past, you know, I don't know, we could even talk about what the time frame has been. Um, and so I wanted to kind of go through that a little bit and get your take on it. Um, it this will become clearer, I think, in a couple of minutes. So uh, bear with me. But um, I guess to contextualize that a little bit, here's what I'm here. Let me here's what I'm thinking that is essentially. Um, so, you know, whether it's sort of the integral uh, you know, framing of things and the work of Ken Wilber, you're at the California uh, Institute of in Integral Studies, um, or, you know, there's also the other big history models, Greg, Enri Greg Enriquez I've been talking to recently in his unified theory of, uh, of knowledge model. Um, and there seems to be, those are just some examples, this sort of confluence of thinking of, of this, you know, 13.7 billion year story of evolution that's unfolded, um, a complexification narrative, wherein um, over this these epochs of time, um, there's been creative the advance of creative novelty. I guess to use sort of a Whiteheadian turn of phrase that has produced sort of a successive stack of complexification layers. Um, some people uh, tie the evolution of consciousness into this narrative in a really, you know, integral way. 
Um, and so that was sort of the angle that I thought we could get into a little bit today. But that's what I'm referring to when I think of this sort of meta narrative that's that sort of emerged that I'm really intrigued in trying to, um, you know, really, really explore and get into some of the rich depth of. Uh, so one, I guess I would just throw that out there and, and maybe get some general thoughts, like is, if you'd have anything to add or to that or what have you. Um, and then beyond that, I'd love to just sort of like go through it all and uh, have some questions for, for you about some of this stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't know. So in, in phrasing it that way, uh, do I do a, a good or a bad job, do you think? Yeah, well, that is the, the context within which a attempt, any attempt at any meta narrative, you know, is going to be framed. It's this cosmological story. And whether or not we uh, are tied to, you know, the specific dating coming out of the inflationary model of physical cosmology, or whether we just say there's a time developmental uh, evolutionary process that has certain general characteristics. It moves from, um, well, maybe these are controversial points, but there seems to be a, uh, a tilt toward complexity over the course of time. Um, and that complexity manifests both in terms of physical organization, but also um, interiority and uh, experience or consciousness intensifies as physical organization complexifies. And so, um, you know, there's an inner and an outer aspect uh, to this uh, big history. Um, I think, though, that there what I would want to add is the importance of not um, be, not too closely wedding this new meta narrative to a particular um, paradigm within physical science because I get the sense, and I'm an amateur when it comes to physics, but in chatting with physicists and cosmologists, uh, particularly those influenced by process thought, Whitehead, but also um, Charles Saunders Peirce and um, other figures who challenge materialism. There's a sense in which the inflationary cosmology, with it's, it's not even one model, it's really a whole assemblage of various models which make patched together um, inferred uh, um, uh, processes based on really scant evidence it, because we only have so many measurements of the large scale cosmos New data is coming in all the time. Um, the Webb Space Telescope is going to go online in a few months. I'm sure we're going to learn mm, mm -hmm. a lot of interesting things there. But the, so the, the details of the so-called Big Bang model may change. But I don't think even if a new paradigm emerges that out-contextualizes the Big Bang model, I don't think it's going to replace this sense of a time developmental sequence. Um, that to me seems pretty well established. Um, and while a new paradigm may add more context, I don't think it's going to refute that idea. And so I feel like we're on pretty solid ground working that into our, uh, our meta narrative mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah, I know. I think you're right. There's sort of like, there's the, the physics, uh, angle of this in some ways, if you're using kind of a, an integral kind of framework for this, right. There's the, the right hand model that, 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 that's going to be open to a lot more just refinement through time, through empirical study. And as you say, we get new data, new information that'll refine sort of the specifics of that 
uh, evolutionary <clears throat> map a bit more, maybe a lot more, presumably a lot more. Um, yeah. And yet we also need philosophers for sort of that left-hand side of things to think more about, well, what's the relationship of, of the interior and that exterior? What's the relationship of consciousness, you know, to the, to the form and that sort of thing. And that was some, one of the things that I wanted to touch on first with you is, um, is, is to try to think through a little bit some of this stuff. I know you've been having some of these conversations and uh, in sort of a general sense with other people who are, who are engaged in the, the hard problem of consciousness and the relationship of physicalism to, you know, um, you know uh, all sorts of different models for thinking about consciousness. Um, and so I wanted to get your take on it, right? So like going all the way back, um, all the way back to the Big Bang, or at least, you know, that Planck time, you know, unit right after it or something, um, as far back as we can go, if there is an interior element to everything, um, what is that like? And describe, if you're willing to, you know, like, what is that the unfolding and the, 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 the move of that interior dimension through, through time and through complexity and through intensity? you know, tell that story a little bit, because I just want to get your take on that. Yeah. Well, I definitely feel that um, the so-called hard problem of consciousness, as David Chalmers framed it, um, really, we could say Descartes framed it uh, in a different sense several hundred years ago. It's intractable enough. It's really an impossible problem uh, that requires um, rethinking the categories of mind and matter that um, the modern world sort of constructed and has forced us to think within. Um, if we want to understand the place of consciousness in the universe, we need, I think, better categories. Um, I turn to Whitehead's thought uh, in search of these categories. He articulates this concept of prehension which of course Ken Wilber builds on. Wilber tends to put it at the very um, origin of the uh, left-hand quadrants, which, you know, as Wilbur is synthesizing all these various schools of thought and thinkers, um, which he, he does a really unparalleled job at, he sometimes, I think, oversimplifies uh, what the theorists he's drawn on are actually saying. And with prehension, Whitehead did not, he certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have been satisfied with it just being an interior sort of process or uh, feeling. For Whitehead, prehension is really an attempt to account for um, causal relationship as such. Prehension or feeling, if we want to use a more colloquial term, is uh, the sort of apprehension of data from an environment and the incorporation or assimilation of it into a subjective perspective. But the data itself is objective. So prehension feels objective data, assimilates it into a new subjective perspective. And so if we wanted to think in terms of the quadrants, prehension is sort of straddling the left and right hand quadrants. It's an attempt to integrate these two domains. Um, and so when we look back at the history of the universe, um, in order to rationally describe uh, physical or mental process, we need some account of causation, right? And so Whitehead's account of causation is that it is from the very get-go, um, a matter of one event or occasion of experience, is his term for it, feeling another event or occasion of experience. And for Whitehead, 
thinking in terms of events or occasions or happenings follows from um, quantum theory as well as relativity theory in a different sense in that um, physics in its attempts to push the reductionistic method as far as it will go discovered that um, well there's no such thing as nature at an instant uh, energy comes in these packets these quanta and as Planck uh, articulated it, it there's a certain duration required even for a single photon to manifest as a photon right and so Whitehead builds a whole event ontology out of this where to be an event is to uh, experience arising out of a past, inheriting what has been actualized in that past, and then anticipating a future and deciding upon, out of many possibilities, what to actualize. When we're talking about photons and electrons and hydrogen atoms, the ability for those sorts of events to uh, dip into the possibilities of the future is rather limited. And so mostly it's reiteration of the past, right? Our normal understanding of causation. In Whitehead's terms, these simpler, say, atomic forms of um, energy are uh, dominated by their physical pull. That is the inheritance of the past, repeating the pattern that occurred just prior. As you move up the scale of complexity, the ability of uh, organized entities or occasions actual occasions in Whitehead's terms to dip into the future increases, right? And so as you get um, to the biological scale uh, with complex nervous systems, um, the history of um, inherited habits is such that it provides more of a uh, platform to reach into the future to realize possibilities um, via anticipation that simpler forms of organization just weren't capable of. So at no level of the scale of complexity is there pure determinism. There's always a little bit of a mental pull in Whitehead's terms, but that mental pull um, becomes more and more relevant, right? As you get to the level of uh, living organisms, animals, mammal, you know, etc. Mm -hmm. When you get to the human being, um, our imaginative freedom is so vast that we can begin to reflect upon the universe in its entirety, our place within it, we can contemplate um, an indefinite span of future time. And we're, you know, troubled as human beings by the fact that the sun's going to explode and swallow the earth one day and the universe itself might end in heat death or, or not. But, you know, we speculate about all these things because of how um, intense the mental pole has become but all of that rests upon this long history of um, evolutionary achievement that has organized our physiology, organized our society and culture such, uh, so as to support this type of, of speculative mm -hmm. imagination. Okay, that's great. That's rich. So let's zoom in on some of that. Uh, first, a housekeeping question. Mm -hmm. So I was digging into process and reality the other day. And like, there are bits there that's like, oh, this is so cool and makes total sense. And then like, the bulk of it is like, this is so dense. And I have no idea what he's getting at. Is it process and reality in which the the main um, current of his thought is expressed? Or is this a, kind of a synthetic thing that you're drawing from multiple texts and, and versions of Whitehead's work that you could also point to? So process and reality is definitely the magnum opus. That was his Gifford lectures at University of Edinburgh. And um, he tried to 
pack it all in there, but it's dense. And if you want to understand Whitehead's thought, it's super helpful to read his earlier work to get a sense for his trajectory coming out of initially mathematics, mathematical logic, then into mathematical physics in the 19 teens as quantum and relativity theories were starting to come onto the scene. And then in the mid twenties, after he retires uh, from his teaching position in London, he had already retired from his earlier position at Cambridge. He's invited by Harvard to come teach philosophy in America. And it's once he gets to Harvard that he gives the lectures that became Science and the Modern World, 1925. I usually recommend that people start with that book. He's beginning to work out his mature metaphysical mm -hmm. scheme there. And it's really helpful to see he's not only a process philosopher in the sense that he's articulating uh, the nature of reality in processual terms, but his method is itself in process. Though <laughs> mm -hmm. so you can see reading his output in historical sequence, how his ideas are taking shape. Um, and then after Process and Reality, a couple other important books were published in 1933. So Process and Reality is 1929. 1933, Adventures of Ideas is published, which he continues to elaborate his metaphysical scheme, but he also uses his metaphysics to interpret Western European history, going back to the Greeks, in terms of the the way that human beings have gradually been trying to realize certain key ideas like freedom and beauty and so on. And he provides um, a bit more of a, I wouldn't say it's exactly plain English, but he's not speaking in the technical language he develops um, in process and reality so much. He's trying to um, use more poetic language in Adventures of Ideas. And then Modes of Thought is his final book, 1938, that's published, where he's even taking a further step away from the more technical language of process and reality to talk about um, the nature of inquiry, um, the, the role of philosophy and civilization. Um, and so he, after process and reality, he's not fixated on like continuing to just mm -hmm. ram home those particular sets of categories. Um, he's trying to free up his thinking after that. Okay. That's helpful. I'll accumulate all those and then dip into those and try to pull it all together. Um, but cause I, I, I see so much, uh, yeah, like incredible potential utility in the way that you're able to apply his process, uh, philosophy and his, his kind of, I guess you'd call it metaphysics, but it's, he, in some ways is kind of eschewing a, a kind of purely metaphysical way of thinking in some ways, but well, anyway, without, without getting too bogged down in that, I, so, so, Articulate this for me then in in the more clear and poetic terms as 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 much as possible of um, say so like Greg Enriquez you know and, oh, draws these complexity domains at matter uh, life mind culture Wilbur has physiosphere biosphere newsphere basically you know matter life you could say uh, culture you know the mind, but using it in a different way than Enriquez does, but using those sorts of, you know, tiers, can you speak to what the interior would be uh, at say, like, I mean, obviously we have firsthand direct experience of what it's like to be a human being at the, at, in the sort of new sphere realm of things, but what is interiority for, you know, a single celled organism, right? What is interiority for, 
um, a crystal, you know, uh, things like that. Is there, is it possible to put those into terms that we can understand uh, or draw meaningful distinctions yeah. between the, the quote unquote subjectivity that exists or the interiority that exists for those sorts of states of, of matter? I, I can try. Um, you know, William Blake said, energy is eternal delight. And so when I try to ima imagine what it might be like to be a photon or an electron, in some sense, um, experience at that scale is, even though it doesn't have a very strong mental pole, it's still tapping into what we would call the eternal in the sense that, you know, photons moving at the speed of light are not experiencing time in the way that uh, other matter does. And so um, I think mystical metaphors become um, relevant at that scale. You know, light has always been treated by spiritual traditions as in some sense uh, analogous to the divine. And so I think Blake's understanding of eternal delight or Whitehead uses the term enjoyment. Um, energy is itself a kind of enjoyment in the way that when we feel music or when we listen to music, we don't really understand why it's enjoyable but it seems just the rhythm itself is a, it's a self-justifying aesthetic delight. And so I think aesthetic metaphors um, that speak to enjoyment and bliss and um, um, good feelings are what constitute uh, the dynamics of energy at the simplest level. And, you know, for Whitehead, Ontology is really for him a subset of aesthetics. It's all about feeling and experience and the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, it felt better to be something. Um, and that feeling of enjoyment is kind of, it's self-justifying, right? When we get to the level of single cells, um, you know, thinking in terms of the basic phenomenology of yum and yuck might be the best that, that we could do. Um, there's a sense of, not only the feeling of yum and yuck, but the capacity to act so as to maximize one and minimize the other. Mm -hmm. um, and so you start to get a valence of value and you get um, this uh, sense of, um, you know, wanting more yum and, and avoiding yuck as much as possible. But for Whitehead, the evolution of living organisms needs more um, of an explanation than that provided just by Darwin's theory of natural selection, which is focused only on survival. If survival was the only value that life was seeking, from Whitehead's point of view, uh, it never would have complexified because with each uh, complexification, you know, more sensitive sensory organs, more specialization that leads to shorter lifespans uh, for some organisms. With each step into complexification, the survival value of an organism actually goes down. So there must be some other factor here. And so for Whitehead, it's not just survival or the desire to live, to remain alive. It's the desire to live better, right? To thrive, if you will. And so there's some longing expressed, even in the simplest cell, uh, to experience more, to deepen experience, intensify experience. Um, and then, you know, so when we, when we move up the scale of complexity, um, 
the capacity for uh, recognizing and enhancing beauty starts to come online. And I think we already see that in a lot of the higher animals, birds uh, and mammals, you know, birds um, will have these elaborate mating rituals. Some of them, some species build stages to dance on, you know, the males will build a stage to dance on for to attract a female. And so you start to get uh, a sense of, Darwin would call it sexual selection, uh, but for, for Whitehead, it's um, the erotic lures that are guiding evolution at that stage to increase the beauty that can manifest in the world. So I think, yeah, these sorts of aesthetic metaphors from just the sense of eternal delight when we're talking about photons and electrons to uh, the yum-yuck differentiation in single cells um, gradually being enhanced to the artistic appreciation that human beings cultivate. So what, let me see if I can put this into words. So that's very helpful. And I, I like that. And I agree with that, all that. Um, my question, I guess, is I, for me, there's a metaphor of sort of, um, you know, the, the slumbering God becoming awake or something, or there's a lot of uh, metaphors in, in, in alchemy that Jung, you know, also talks about in terms of like the, the divine sort of being, you know, uh, lost in matter and sort of being need to drawn out. And there's a bunch of different mythological images that could be used too. But um, is, there, is there a sense in which this progression through complexification is akin to a waking up? Um, I guess that'd be question one. Mm -hmm. Question two is what, can, is it even possible to speak of whatever basis of comparison is there between the kind of interior consciousness that we experience as complex, you know, uh, uh, human beings and, mm -hmm. and a, and a particle, right? Like what, it, what is the common denominator that we can, that we can speak to? Um, and obviously, I mean, well, I say, obviously, I presume we need phenomenological metaphors and, 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 and images to draw from there, but like um, to try to get a sense of that gradient that exists um, is, is really what I'm trying to wrap my head around. I don't know. So yeah, good question. Um, well, the first question that, you know, can this evolutionary process be understood uh, in, in mystical theological terms as the gradual waking up of the divine? And yes, you know, Whitehead has a process theology where initially God in the primordial state, the primordial nature of God in Whitehead's terms, um, God's unconscious. And God's role is, as the primordial pole uh, of the universe, to provide um, some evaluation of the infinite realm of possibilities, which then reverberates into how each subsequent actual occasion will relate to that realm of infinite possibility in its, from its perspective in its unique context, right? And so... Um, you could see the primordial nature of God as sort of a filter uh, of mind at large, right? In Huxley's terms, that prevents finite occasions of experience from being overwhelmed. But this primordial pole of God is unconscious. 
because for Whitehead, consciousness always requires relationship, um, either relationship between possibility and actuality or relationship between occasions in a society, uh, actual occasions in a society. And God is alone in God's primordial nature. Um, and so it's only after finite actual occasions have arisen in the course of cosmic history, inheriting God's initial evaluation of possibility, which then uh, gives rise to what Whitehead calls the consequent nature of God, which is God's uh, reception of the decisions made by all the finite creatures in the universe. God feels and suffers with every occasion of experience in the universe and thereby becomes conscious, right? God doesn't know God's self except uh, through relationship with the world, right? And so you can see the process of evolution as God's gradual awakening. Uh, for Whitehead, he says in the context of human beings that the power of God is the worship that God inspires, which is to say, Whitehead's God can't reach into the universe like some omnipotent dictator and change what's happening. Uh, God works as a, as a lure to try to uh, coax finite creatures to realize what's most beautiful, but the decision's up to the creatures because the creatures are to some degree self-creating, right? So they're not just creatures. God, Whitehead says, is both creator and creature too because God is a creature of creativity, which is actually Whitehead's ultimate. God is a creature of creativity, but, a, but a, um, the primordial creature, which sort of as, acts as a filter again, right, on, on pure possibility. And so, yeah, as organisms complexify and intensify their own experience, new sensory organs are developed um, to enhance perception. As a result of that, God is becoming more conscious. Um, so then to turn to your second question about the common denominator here, um, the difficulty of this question is that most of our, the, the, the phenomenological tradition coming out of, you could say Kant and, and Hegel and then Husserl, who really formalizes what we generally call phenomenology in the 20th century, um, it tends to focus on our sensory experience. Um, I mean, there's Husserl's reflecting deeply on um, temporality as well, which is important. But when you generally think of what phenomenology is doing, it's like, oh, we're trying to describe our sensory experience. Um, and since Aristotle, who in book alpha of his metaphysics emphasizes vision as the most important sense for metaphysics, um, the whole Western tradition has been obsessed with our visual experience. That's been the paradigm of clear and distinct knowledge of reality, right? The ears would come in second place because without ears, we wouldn't be able to talk to each other. We wouldn't have uh, this sort of language that allows us to give articulation um, to the nature of reality. But phenomenology tends to focus on experienced through these highly developed sense organs. And for, for, for Whitehead, what it's neglecting, not just phenomenology, but the Western philosophical tradition, it's neglecting the feelings of the viscera, which is our feelings of um, bodily inheritance of the just prior moment of our own experience. It's not 
a visual experience, it's not an auditory experience, it's closer to touch, you could say, but it's so fundamental to how we become from moment to moment that it's very easy to miss it. But Whitehead gets at this in terms of, um, he calls it the feelings of the viscera, it's the feeling of inheritance that is best, the closest we can get to capturing it is like, it's not what we see through our eyes, it's like when we walk into a dark room and flip on the light switch and our eyes blink. That's the feeling of what Whitehead calls causal efficacy. We're actually feeling the nerves that typically are transparent because we want to feel what the nerves are transmitting. But when we, you know, or when we have a stomach ache, we're feeling our internal organs or another, if another organ is hurting, like usually we call for a doctor immediately because that's not the case. Typically all of that is transparent and we just experience it as emotion, mood, and these other subtle forms of experience that someone like Heidegger is very good at articulating. And so Whitehead's like Heidegger in that sense that he wants to direct our attention to these subtler textures of experience. He's unlike Heidegger in that he wants to generalize uh, from our own experience of bodily feeling to the rest of nature, non-human nature, and say something admittedly speculative about what simpler forms of this experience may have been that evolved into the type of high-grade experience, sensory perception, intellectual reflection, and so on, that was only in germ originally, but comes to full flower in us. And so it's kind of this process of like almost alchemical distillation to peel back all these layers um, of our own very high-grade experience and to see what's left. And one of the most important critiques that Whitehead makes of Western philosophy is, uh, particularly modern Western philosophy, is the critique of what he calls sensationalism, which is the uh, from Descartes through Hume and Kant, all of them see our sense experience through our sense organs um, as the, the raw data that we construct a picture of reality out of. And he's saying, no, our sense organs are pretty derivative in terms of what's basic to experience. We need to go back to our pre-sensory bodily feelings to get a sense for what's actually basic to our experience. Yeah. And it's so hard because you can't do anything outside of the body. I mean, even going into a <clears throat> sensory deprivation chamber, you know, for example, you might be able to kind of calm that noise enough, but you're still experiencing what might be perceived as that pure conscious state through a highly complex brain formulation too, in a way that like a, a cell doesn't have, or a, you know, a moat doesn't have. Um, so it's a, it's sort of a daunting task to begin to try to find the parallels there. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to zoom in a little bit more on this primordial consequent God thing. Cause that, that, that for me is so interesting. And also maybe at this point to bring in the, the idea of like the one, the many and the creative force, um, which I know is sort of really central to his way of thinking about things, because, <clears throat> you know, if, if you take this idea as, as I, as I understand it, which is not very well admittedly, which uh, is why I'm hoping to be, uh, you know, to, to learn a thing or two here. Um, so like, let's say you have this primordial God that is unconscious and sort of, um, in some ways setting the conditions for what unfolds, but is sort of outside of the picture. Consequent God is, as you say, this sort of, or at least as I interpret it, this sort of sum totality of what 
creatures then are experiencing through this process of, of unfolding. Um, and then for me, a couple questions arise. One is, is there, is there a, an ultimate consequent God, right? Is there, is this process unfolding towards a certain kind of Omega point where, where the God fully wakes up and is sort of then fully self-conscious and fully self-aware and, and what's, what's that and what does that look like? Um, two is, um, what is the relationship of the, of the creative, of, the, of creativity to, to either the, the primordial or the consequent God? Is that, is that somehow like the projected something of that God working through reality towards something? Is it a third force? Is it, you know, is it, is it, yeah. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> some open questions there. Yeah. Well, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, um, Whitehead doesn't have an Omega. It's kind of an open question. Um, for him, creativity is, he also refers to it as the principle of unrest. Um, it's an eternal process and it's going somewhere only in relationship to God because God has given some value to the realm of infinite possibility, tilting it towards uh, beauty. And evolution is the result of the lure fed to each creature, you know, to move towards beauty. But there's no end in Whitehead's view of this. There's no omega like you find in, in Pierre Terre de Chardin or something. Um, it's not incompatible with a view like that, but Whitehead doesn't, uh, put a bow on the end of cosmic evolution and say, this is where it's all headed. He's really more, uh, em he emphasizes the way in which each present moment, regardless of its um, sort of loca evolutionary location, if you will, in a very simple occasion of experience or in a more complex occasion of experience, like a human, a monk meditating or something, the present moment he says, can, is, is eternal. <laughs> and this is very much congruent with many of the world's mystical tradition traditions that um, the, the present moment is eternal. Eternity is the full amplitude of time, past and future being realized in the present. Whitehead's a process thinker, obviously. And so there are there's a whole succession of present moments which inherit and build upon one or one another in an interesting way. But if you want to define the goal of all of it, Whitehead would say, don't look to the future. It's in the present, right? The, the, the entire metaphysical meaning of, of creation, of creativity is in the present. You're not going to find it anywhere else because you'll never be anywhere else. Mm. Um, and so in terms of, creativity um, and its relationship to the divine, you know, I think in some ways, Whitehead's, uh, you know, you were asking to the, the extent to which his approach to metaphysics is, is different, right? He's not doing it in the old, in the old way in a sort of a priori sense where uh, experience needs to conform to the a priori categories or whatever for Whitehead. Um, he's building on William James. He's a radical empiricist. And so concrete experience is the final arbiter. 
And if our ideas, our categories don't fit with experience, then we need to revise the categories. Uh, and he says that it's always concrete experience which explains abstraction, never the reverse. You can't explain experience with abstractions because experience is always the context within which abstractions and ideas and concepts arise. And so um, creativity is, and, and creativity's relationship to God with the primordial and consequent poles, you could say these are three ultimates, even if creativity is the, uh, is the super ultimate. <laughs> but he's, what he's trying to do there is, in a radically empirical way, um, look at the history of religious experience, not just in the West, not just in Christianity and Judaism, not just in Islam, but in Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism, and say, what metaphysical scheme can I articulate that makes room for all of these different perspectives on the divine and on the ultimate nature of reality? And so for the Buddhists, you know, the nature of reality as creativity or a kind of um, uh, emptiness, they get what they need with his principle of creativity. The theistic traditions get what they need when he adds God. However, most Christian, most Christians and Jews and Muslims are not happy with the idea of a God that's not all powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, and who is the sort of sovereign creator out of nothing of, of a, of a material universe and human souls. So does Whitehead accomplish his goal of trying to make room for all the world's traditions? Well, some adherents to these traditions think yes, because they're more interested in intra-religious and inter, mm. I should say, inter-religious dialogue, and they want to find some common ground. But, you know, others are more partisan and, and aren't willing to make these concessions mm -hmm. on behalf of an integral view that would hold all the tra traditions together. But creativity is the ultimate is is i think whitehead's attempt to create the biggest tent possible mm -hmm. within which all the history of human religious experience can find a place yeah you you did a much better job than i did trying to explain what i meant about you know is it metaphysics at all because as you say he draws a distinction that you you don't understand i forget the exact way you put it abstractions by means of 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 concretions but sort of the other way around or maybe it's yeah, the other way you can't yeah. explain concreteness with abstractions and there's sort of this the, the the kind of i think of in some ways the sort of metaphysical move quintessentially is sort of to think in terms of abstractions as being the ultimate reality you know in a platonic way right you know those are forms and then there are participate participations of concrete you know versions of those abstract forms and and but those are somehow less real but white have sort of like many philosophers certainly post Nietzsche you know sort of flipping that on its head and being like no it's actually you know we abstract based on the concrete well I guess you could even say in some ways that that's what Aristotle was doing but anyway um so my question though is uh is so if we're not dealing with abstractions at least not as like fundamental metaphysical entities of of of, of ontological reality but we're dealing with <clears throat> what he what what he calls right uh actualities or actual events right like you know you call you call them a radical empiricist like that's what we're working with here so when he's talking about god primordial or consequent where do we locate this idea right um is this is this an abstraction 
or is this something that we actually do have any direct immediate phenomenological uh, experience of in his view? Good question. Um, so just to go back to the question of how he is engaging with metaphysics, he's a radical empiricist, right? And so, right, he wants concreteness to explain abstraction and never abstraction explaining concreteness or concrete experience, um, which is to say that as an example would be uh, attempts to explain consciousness in terms of um, brain, state, brain states measured in an fMRI machine. Um, those are abstractions. You can't explain away the very uh, capacity for observation that allowed for that study to take place, right, in terms of these abstract measurements, um, just as an example. Um, but to do metaphysics, though, you know, Whitehead is elaborating a, um, a categorical scheme, he calls it. And you've noticed trying to read process and reality that the whole first part is him laying out definitions mm -hmm. of these 20 some odd different categories. And it seems super abstract. So it's like, you might hear me saying he's a radical empiricist and start processing reality and be like, what are you talking about? But Whitehead's not trying to prohibit um, the elaboration of a categorical table. He does that, but he he does it in this sort of recursive way, whereby um, he 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 describes the method of speculative philosophy or metaphysics as being akin to um, the flight of an airplane. You begin on the solid ground of concrete observation and experience, right? The history of religious experience, right? Uh, the findings of contemporary science, the common sense presuppositions of civilized life, literature and poetry. All of this is the data that we begin with. And then he says the airplane takes off into the, the thin air of imaginative generalization, right? And so you're abstracting general principles that seem to hold true of all of this data that you're beginning with, right? You elaborate while you're in the air imaginative categories which in some way elucidate the principles at work in the concrete data and you land the plane again and test the categories you've elaborated mm. with renewed experience in all of the domains i just mentioned and so in this way there's a um, open-ended process of refinement of these categories right they're not a priori set apart from experience as the conditions the necessary and universal conditions out of which experience is constructed or produced in a sort of Kantian way. Rather, uh, they are sort of hypothetical, empirical uh, suggestions that can be continually refined. It's an experimental approach to metaphysics, if you want. It's pragmatic, right, coming out of the Jamesian tradition again. However, um, Whitehead's not totally dispensing with the idea of necessity, which is key in the metaphysical tradition. Um, you know, going back to Plato uh, in the Timaeus, it's the creation of the universe depends on these two initial ingredients, necessity and um, order, you could say. Though necessity in, in Greek, ananke is, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's more like chaos actually so there's ambiguity here but the point is order and chaos initially right 
order is necessity, chaos is contingency. Whitehead's not saying everything is just contingent and a function of whatever occurs in experience, right? There are necessities, and for him, the primordial nature of God is a kind of metaphysical necessity. And he, he makes an analogy to Aristotle, who, as you could say, the first metaphysician, um, develops a concept of God as an unmoved mover in order to solve a cosmological problem, which is what is the source of motion? Whitehead says physics has advanced. We don't have an analogous problem anymore. We don't have that problem anymore, mm -hmm. the problem of where motion comes from. But we have an analogous problem, which is how does something actual come out of pure possibility? And as I was describing earlier, that's the function of God's primordial nature. There is something actual. We're experiencing it. Quantum theory and um, other speculations point us to this notion of a plenum of possibility of infinite energy underlying everything out of which the universe emerged. And so how did that emergence take place? Whitehead's answer is, well, we need a God principle of some kind here to solve the problem. And he admits though, that postulating the existence of this God to solve the problem of the transition from possibility to actuality, he says it's, it is the ultimate irrationality because it is the ground of all rationality, right? And so, you could say it's like one free miracle. As far as I can tell, physical science doesn't get away with explaining the universe without its own version of one free miracle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you we have to say, some cosmologists would say, well, there must have been a very low entropy state at the beginning of the universe. In other words, a very highly ordered state at the beginning of the universe in order to account for the organization and complexity we see today, despite the second law of thermodynamics saying everything should be dispersing into disorder. So if you wind the clock back, there must have been a very ordered state at the beginning. Well, how could there be a very ordered state at the, at the beginning if the physicalist story is that order just arises sort of accidentally over the course of long stretches of time um, because of probability? Like, it's a free miracle, right? Mm -hmm. So. Whitehead is asking us to accept this irrational idea of a God upon the basis of which we can then offer rational explanations for why we have this sort of universe that we experience. Yeah. Well, and without going into that issue of order and, you know, entropy and stuff, because, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot yeah. there. And actually you could make, you could actually make just the reverse, which like, uh, Eric Chasson does in uh, Cosmic Evolution, right? That actually, like basically the heat death already happened and yet we're getting all this complexity because of this negentropic, you know, thing. And anyway, but but we can talk about that some other time. But but um, my, but to, to, to home in on this question though about the direct experience of, of God is something right, that I'm right. curious about Whitehead because, because if everything does have this interior component, it seems like, then wouldn't that also in some ways include god as well what is the interior of god or something like that yeah. right and isn't that in some ways you could maybe make the argument what what god is waking up to or something yeah no thanks for closing the loop there i wanted to get to that part of your question too so there's the metaphysical necessity of some kind of primordial nature right that accounts for the transition from possibility to actuality but whitehead says what further can be known about the divine nature is an empirical question and not scientific empiricism, but a broader radical empiricism. In other words, uh, 
through experience, mystical experience um, of various sorts, is our window into the divine nature. And so when we talk about proofs of the existence of God, there's a, you know, cosmological proofs, logical proofs, etc. Um, Whitehead doesn't think we can prove the nature of God because either we experience it or we don't. And if we don't, uh, Whitehead and, you know, process theological thinkers might say that there are certain missing practices that would be required to cultivate experience so as to allow one to, to, to peer through that window into the divine nature. Um, but it's not something that you can logically prove because again, even in his, in the context of what's metaphysically necessary, he admits it's an ultimate irrationality. It's, it's what allows the rest of his categorical scheme to hold together and you can take it or leave it as a whole. If you don't want to accept that original irrationality, you know, you can have at it, offer your own account of the universe, where it came from and what we're doing here. But for Whitehead, there is this large experiential component and so the best way to understand the divine nature would be through something like, you know, William James's varieties of religious experience. You know, go across all the various cultures, see how human beings have related to this mystery, for lack of a better word. And, and that allows us to fill out uh, the nature of this divine being and it doesn't seem to be just a static kind of eternal entity. It's in process. It's growing with the world. It's growing with the evolution of consciousness of human beings, right? And so it's sort of a continuous revelation, and um, we don't mm -hmm. know where it's going next. And, but so then, yes, yes, yes. And that, that then raises the question for me, right? Like, okay, you got primordial God that's sleeping, unconscious, You've got consequent God, which is something like this, you know, summation of finite creatures experience being expressed eternally, for lack of a better way of putting that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but then like, and then you got this consequent, well, that's what, that's what that is. But then what then is that like totally numinous, totally transcendent thing that feels complete and total and, and finished you know, what's being related to there? Is it, um, it doesn't seem to be the, the primordial God. Um, another way of asking this is I'm, I'm trying to get at some of, you know, some of these fundamental ontological categories that are there, right? There's like, if you imagine this sort of spatially, which might not be helpful, but there's sort of like primordial God, consequent God. And then there's like creativity happening in here towards complexity, right? Um, but then you've also got like, well, what is the space in which creativity is unfolding? Like the universe? Well, is the universe part of that? You know, trying to parse some of those, you know, ideas a little bit is still, I'm trying to get sort of the full taxonomy here of these like, you know, fundamental categories to work with. But then on top of that, right, if you are dealing with sort of the, the God experience and the mystical experience, what is being experienced? Are we jumping ahead to that omega somehow? Um, that's sort of left open or, yeah. I, I, does that question make sense? I don't know if I phrased it well. It's hard to phrase it, but I think I, I grok what you're trying to articulate, which, um, you know, while Whitehead is in some ways inverting Plato, um, he, 
is really um, he praises the Plato's work in the Timaeus, this cosmological dialogue, um, and thinks that all the ingredients, the conceptual ingredients you need are there, even in light of a couple thousand years of scientific advance, he thinks that Plato's Timaeus actually will outlast Newton's scolium as a cosmological statement because Newton was a little bit too um, uh, specialized in articulating a closed conceptual scheme. Plato is vague enough <laughs> uh, and mythic enough, you know, that it can continue to apply, but some of his intuitions were were spot on and Whitehead thinks while Newton would have been deeply disturbed by the idea of an evolving universe, just as Einstein was in a sense, he wanted it to be an eternal uh, static universe, Plato would have been delighted by the idea because the Timaeus is the story of the gradual emergence of order out of chaos. Um, Plato has this concept of the receptacle and the receptacle is he, he says it's like a bastard idea and that it's not fully eternal, it's not fully temporal. It's, a, it's the form of formlessness, you could say, because it's the context within which, the matrix within which forms can, can take on um, actual existence, right? It's space, but not empty space, right? It's a, it's a fertile, burdened, um, pregnant space of possibility. And so that's where it's all happening. Um, it's, it's in that receptacle that um, every event which arises in the cosmos in space and time finds relationship to every other event in space and time. So it's the um, context of relationship. And so it's not, the receptacle isn't separate from those relationships, right? It's not empty space within which actual occasions exist or occur and find relationship. It is the relational matrix, right? So that's a platonic notion that Whitehead continues to elaborate. He ends up calling it the extensive continuum, right? And it's the, you know, it's not a container and it's, it's a, Plato says it's a dark and difficult idea because it's not quite an idea. Uh, it's the space in which ideas occur. Interesting. <laughs> um, well, I'm okay. Sure so that helps or makes yeah, it Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, both, which is good, right? Um, uh, so jumping back to what you were saying about, you know, to speak to that divine experience, you have to draw on something akin to like James's varieties of religious experience or any of the, you know, comparative and sort of, you know, an encyclopedic compendia of, of these sorts of uh, experiences. One of the characteristics of many of them is in the sort of unia mystica is like the sense that the, the sort of uh, the erasure of subject object distinction, including that of creature and creator and, and sort of self and God, there's sort of this, oh, you know, we are one and there is only one and that sort of a thing. That seems to be a kind of leitmotif that, that's um, throughout those kinds of accounts. So when you take an idea like that and you mix it in with some of this process, Whiteheadian philosophy, and you think of this notion of, uh, you know, a slumbering deity slowly waking to self-awareness, I'm left with this image 
kind of myth of, yeah, just that, that basically what our very own interior realities are, are the partial existences, our partial experiences of, of all that is, which when, as you say, maybe in, in, with the introduction of particular practices, you know, mystical cultivation or what have you, uh, can be opened to the fullness of self-realization, self-consciousness, and the unification with the divine, which is to realize that you are the divine and that there isn't really separation. So to me, that sets this whole evolutionary saga within the mystical framework of, you know, know thyself, know thyself, wake up, you are God waking up to God's self, you are the conscious, you are the universe becoming conscious of itself, etc. Jung's myth of meaning thrown in here. It's a rich tapestry of this sort of like unfolding, growing to greater and greater self-awareness, which is the mystical experience of the unification of your small S self with the kind of capital S self. Um, ramble done. Does that resonate with you? Does that, does that, does that, does that work in this schema at all? Or, or is there anything that you would say either what the heck are you talking about? Or yes, that more or less seems to, you know, accord with this sort of way of thinking. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I don't, even though there's plenty of um, food in Whitehead's process theology that would feed a mystical perspective, uh, mystical practice, I don't really look to Whitehead for that. I think um, his m cosmology and metaphysics is compatible with this lineage that that you're you're drawing from. Um, you know, the idea that like uh, Meister Eckhart describes of um, you know the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. That notion it's kind of a panentheistic understanding, totally compatible with Whitehead. Um, well, what does what does Matt Siegel think? Well, I, I, I think that there's both, there's a dialectic here and it's at the same time that we want to, that I would want to affirm unity with the Godhead. I think it could be that a step along the way to that is realizing the um, fundamental difference between my creatureliness and the infinite divine ground. Not that that's the end point, but if you skip over the sort of mm. antithesis moment, to put it in Hegelian terms of unhappy consciousness and being fully alienated from the divine, if you skip over that, then you end up with some kind of touchy-feely, too easy, new age woo, mm. where it's like, I'm God and you're God and, and I can just, whatever I want to be true will come true and that doesn't work. And so... It's like we have to go through the negative moment and um, we can't be in blissed out divine unity consciousness all the time. There needs to be a um, finitude is, is, is essential to uh, creative emergence, to, uh, to, the, to, to the realization of beauty, right? You could say one definition of beauty, I think this is Schelling's, Beauty is the infinite rendered in finite form, right? The infinite isn't beautiful. It's, you could say it's sublime in the Kantian 
Burkean sense of like, it's too much. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, can't make sense of this. It's formless. But for beauty, which for Whitehead is the pinnacle of experience, for Plato, beauty is like that idea which is closest to the sensory domain. It's like, it's like the pathway into the eternal through beauty, mm. from the sensory to the eternal. Um, to realize beauty, you need finitude, you know? So for me, um, I think maybe drawing on my uh, Jewish heritage, there's, there's this like prophetic need uh, to remain historically embedded, facing the problems of, of our social situation and cultural moment and not just renouncing that to transcend into the godhead um even though being recharged by such transcendent experiences is a crucial aspect of mm. um you know knowing where we'd like society to go the values we'd like to guide social transformation and so on um but i'm not in such a rush to transcend my finite uh, sure. embodied existence no, that all that's uh, makes me think of a lot of things. One is, you know, there's a difference between there's a difference between knowing and doing in the sense that, um, you know, even in the Mahayana, you know, Bodhisattva tradition, right? You gain that knowing, that sort of gnosis, that enlightenment, you know, glimpse advantage on the world, but then you come back into the world and you act. Um, so you don't leave it. You don't just get out, you know, you, you, uh, the participate, the participation is the thing, but also even that kind of mystical understanding that, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. So to participate in the world is not to, you know, renounce transcendence. It is still a higher almost form of engagement with transcendence. But it also made me think of um, the beautiful poem by Wallace Stevens Sunday morning, in which he says that death is the mother of beauty um and the 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 need for yeah finitude to uh to render to render things beautiful um and i guess i guess i i say all that because there's a difference between what i was getting at originally there's a difference between having maybe some kind of mystical experience and then deducing from that that all we should do now is just you know sit in lotus pose and bliss out right mm -hmm. like uh what we take from that potential self-knowledge if that is the case doesn't need to be that it could be all these things that you're talking about. Um, yeah. but, yeah. but it's sort of transformed by that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some reflections on all that. Um, well, gosh, very fruitful, very, very fascinating. I don't know if you, uh, we're coming up on, you know, an hour and 15 and, and so, uh, we should probably, uh, end it before too long, but, um, yeah, I'd love to hear any maybe final reflections on any of this. And there's, there's so much more we could, you know, just, keep going infinitely i'm sure but yeah well as john bravecki would say this has been a great dialogos and i i really appreciate your questions um being able to dialogue uh about whitehead or you know my own thoughts really helps to deepen my own understanding of <laughs> my own perspective you know because i do try to remain in in process and it's not just process philosophy it's often called process relational philosophy and that relational element is um, so key for me to keep the dialectic going, to keep the evolutionary process going. Um, I think the only thing I'd want to add to what we were just discussing is like the importance of um, not only taking the perspective of the human longing for transcendence, but remembering that, you know, the divine or say it's like the angels uh, or the uh, in Tolkien's terms, the elves want to 
understand what death is and become human, you know? So don't just think of you being this finite being trapped in a body trying to return to God. We're here because God, the angels, the elves, whoever wanted to become human and experience death, right? So embrace the process that you are part of and recognize the value in what at first may seem shitty. (laughs) You're here for a reason to experience death and the beauty which is born out of it. Mm. Well said. And yes, that also reminded me of, of that third thing I wanted to mention based on what you were saying is, is you know, the, that middle step can't be avoided. You can't just jump to this absolute, you know, oh, I'm God and you're God and everything, you know, it's, um, it's uh, that, and, and here I think actually the whole kind of framework that Wilbur uses is really helpful that you need, right? Like you need differentiation to occur before you can integrate something, right? It's not the same of like, oh, blissful being in the womb was so great or being a child before I was conscious was like paradise. It's like, no, you need to have a self before you can transcend the self. Um, so there's, there's, there's no getting away from that. Um, and it, uh, it's, a, it's a necessary, you know, requisite, I would think, moment in, in that whole and that whole storyline. And the other thing I wanted to say too, based on what you beautiful words you just said was if people watch this and might think, what the hell is all this about? And why does it matter? And what meta narrative and whatever, for me, all this is so talk about concrete being important and the real nitty gritty of experience, you know, being important and not this abstract stuff because people, Oh, there's a great line. I'm going to butcher it, but um, I don't remember who said it, but it was something like, you know, someone defending poetry and they said uh there there are many people who die every day for for the lack of what is found therein or something like that the point being that what things that you look at and say oh why does this matter it seems so esoteric like there's a craving for meaning there's a, a a deep human desire to be like what's this all about and every day people are uh committing suicide are depressed are are living in all sorts of ways that are just operating from a very nihilistic and very kind of unmoored sort of angle. And arguably a lot of things that we're experiencing is all this dissolution and fragmentation and chaos stem from that. Um, And uh, so the idea of having a story that's a meaningful one that, that relates you to the whole that, that, that locates your own individual human experience within a, a broader narrative of significance, like, that to me is, is um, there, there, there's few things, if anything, that's more important than that. And uh, so the work of trying to articulate this meta narrative, for lack of a better term, is for me really urgent, um, uh, as well as just beautiful and fascinating and, and its own kind of expression of uh, the creative advance of beauty and novelty in the world. Um, and it's been deeply meaningful and helpful for me. So anyway, that, all that being said, I really appreciate um, you're thinking about all this and the deep knowledge that you've got of Whitehead and uh, and all these other things. I'd love to talk more with you at some point about a lot of this, um, but this has been really rich and fruitful. So thank you, Matt Siegel. Here's to more conversations in the future. Appreciate you coming on. I look forward to the next time. Thanks, Brendan.